So we want to explore the similes. There's a great genius in the Buddha for trying to describe these emotional, whole body, spiritual states, really, the mystery of what happens in spiritual experience. Of course, even the word spiritual is an English word. I don't know what it means. There is no Pali word meaning that, but they're much more actually technical and scientific than (laughs) in the 5th century BC. We have these inadequate words, mystical, spiritual, who knows what those mean, but these are internal states which happen to us and we need to somehow communicate what it felt like. And it's interesting having had so many interviews over decades with people, we, we sit across from each other one-on-one and, and my famous number 10,000, number 10,000, that's, that's the low ball number, 10,000 one-on-one interviews I've given. Actually, I should stop saying 10,000. It's more like 12. So So to sit across one-on-one with another person and talk about their inner states, how it feels and this kind of thing is, is interesting. I think of those conversations where recorder just filmed from outside. People would find it interesting when somebody starts describing what's going on and the camera should focus on me thinking, what is he going to say about that? (laughs) What did they just say? It sounds mysterious, but actually because Buddhism has so taken the whole structure apart, really analyzed all of this, it is fairly easy for me to understand what people are saying. And quite often I know better than them what they just experienced. It's quite easy to know more about a person than they know about themselves, you know. (laughs) If you think about kids, you know, what they're up to and so forth, and you've been a kid and now you're an adult and you, you know what it's like, but they don't know what it's like to be an adult. So to have experience in an area, a lot of years in experience, then quite often you, you know what the person is experiencing more than they do. So this is part of it. Your own experience should be clarified for you. And this is why you go to these retreats, why you listen to Dhamma talks, especially on the jhanas, and why you should read the basic instructions of the Buddha and descriptions about the jhanas. I might advise you perhaps to avoid some of the commentarial descriptions. You can go down a lot of rabbit holes there and whole countries <laughs> have for centuries gone down rabbit holes with obscure passages from various texts, not just in Buddhism, but in all kinds of interesting commentarial traditions from Christianity, from Sufism, from Kabbalah, and all of these things can take you into areas that are kind of off the track. So when we try to understand these jhanas, we really should 
appreciate how authoritative, clear, and brilliant the Buddha is, the historical Buddha. There are suttas and sutras later on that are attributed to the Buddha, but are not who we would call the historical Buddha. They are the pious fabrications of monks attributing these ideas or words to the Buddha as if it was the Buddha. But when you come across the, the actual word of the historical Buddha, you really appreciate the quality, the clarity, the interest in communicating. And generally, no commentarial tradition lives up to that. None of them are as smart as the Buddha. <laughs> and by the way, the Buddha said that. <laughs> None of you are as smart as me. <laughs> the Buddha says, you know, later on, poets will make poems around my teachings and so forth. There will be very beautiful expressions of it and everything. But none of those are as lucid, clear, and precise as the words of the Buddha himself. And he says, always go back and check them side by side with what is said. So this is what I've done and what I advocate that lay people who are really interested in this do is just get very familiar with the basic suttas. There's not an endless amount of, of things that the Buddha said about this, but once you get into commentaries and other traditions, it really becomes voluminous and quite often more confusing than helpful. So this jhana is an immersive experience. You can see that the entire body-mind is taken into them. So it's an immersive experience, and the best moments of our lives have always been totally immersive. We are swallowed up by life. And we really want to be. Whenever we're not, when we're standing beside ourselves or alienated, it's just not satisfactory. It makes one wonder what the point of the exercise of life is. If you can find something that pulls you completely into it and you are one in there, then there is no questioning about the meaningfulness of it. So this has to be a full-bodied, full-hearted experience and for that to happen, you have to stop holding back as well. And there's all kinds of little things, unconscious habits. We're a bit of a wallflower sometimes about spiritual experiences, about these immersive experiences. We're a bit shy to go out there and dance. We're holding back something, and this has to be let go of. And that experience is is called sadda, or faith, confidence. That is, you let go of your, your reservations. You really can't do this and be skeptical of it at the same time. You either jump or you don't. It's kind of, you're standing on the edge of the three-meter board at the pool. <laughs> you can't just touch the water. There's nothing between you and jumping off the board. 
You jump or you don't, but you can't half jump. So that is kind of an abandonment of your normal states of mind. This is not normal. The first simile, which I've already talked about, is this permeating it through you. And you have to do this with utter enthusiasm and with the same kind of loving conviction that you would make a good loaf of bread. The bath attendant has a craft, actually. And whether you're experienced or not, by the way, the simile where the Buddha says a bath attendant or his apprentice means the experienced meditator, whether you're experienced with uh, the jhanas or whether you're learning them. So the attendant is a craftsperson who already has the skills in the crafts. And they do the same thing as the apprentice does. The apprentice must also do that. So if you're learning it or whether you're experienced, you still, in the first jhana, have to actively massage this into your system until you're saturated with it. And part of the, the first uh, two factors of that, this vitaka and vichara, uh, we, we, he just, well, is described in a number of ways as a bee circling a flower, vitaka circling, and then landing, vichara. So the bee circles the flower and lands. You're circling the object of your attention, whether it's the breath or loving kindness. The mind is circling it because that's its nature. And when it determines what it is, then it lands. It's a beautiful simile from nature. It circles and lands. You can also see this from the flight of birds, is that they flap their wings for a while and then they glide. They flap their wings and then they glide. They flap their wings and then they glide. So this is what the mind is doing in the attempting to enter the first jhana. Is there's an active movement of the mind around the object of your attention, and then there's a sustained period where you're on it, and then then you lose it, and you have to come back to that. Now, how long, how many, how long you're going to have to flap your wings, and how much you're going to flap your wings, and how much you're going to glide? That's just up to each individual. There's no precise way to just whatever condition your mind is in. Some of you will not get off the ground, even though you flap your wings, but you can't get into the air. And there's days like that. By the way, that's the case for even people of the first two stages of enlightenment. Jhana is not necessarily available all the time, but only in in the right conditions, so that even a person in the first or second stage of enlightenment may not have access to this deep samadhi at will. It depends on what their mind's been entangled with lately and what's going on around them. So you should be also patient with yourself to realize that this is not it's not commandable, except maybe in the third and fourth stages of enlightenment where you can pull it off pretty well every time because the mind, the deeper impediments to this 
the roots of the impediments have been removed. But we may have to do a lot of superficial removal depending on how active the roots are. There's a beautiful saying by Thoreau, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of the tree of evil for every one hacking at the roots. And this is what you're doing in meditation, in contemplation. And that's what Thoreau is doing in his little cabin. People wondered what he's up to. Why isn't he out there doing good, uh, doing this and doing that? Because that's hacking at the branches. So what is he doing there? He's digging up the roots. And when he talks about the tree of evil, evil has a deeper root, which is always delusion, ignorance, ultimately. So the greed, hatred, delusion, greed, hatred, delusion, this is a little circle that goes around, around, sometimes represented as a pig, a snake, and a rooster, and they're biting each other's tail and going in a circle chasing each other around. Greed, hatred, delusion. So the root, the ultimate root is this ignorance, also known as, we translate it as delusion. It's not really a good word, but avijja. The roots are, if we knew better, greed and hatred would wither or disappear. And they keep manifesting as symptoms and we keep trying to deal with the symptoms. But for those who say, enough with the symptom stuff, enough with dealing with the superficial actions, I want to go deeper and find out why this happens. The roots are, this greed, hatred, and delusion is an impediment to the, to the jhana, to the samadhi. But the samadhi is also an attrition of the energy of greed, hatred, and delusion. If you cultivate this, then you deprive the ignorance of its source of nutriment. It weakens. In other words, the hindrances are suppressed for a period of time. In the jhanas, they're suppressed. And at that time, the fog and the mist have cleared up and you can see it and you might see a long ways and you might see something that you never unsee it's a vision an awareness a clarity an understanding about life the nature of life that never recedes so this is the function of this samadhi the jhana so there's activity in the description of this bath person massaging, working, creating until it is completely saturated. So there's, you see the primary element of this is action and craft and movement. So the first jhana has that. Second one is, is this simile of the mountain pool where there's no apparent external source of water and yet the pool is is cool and clear and fresh and 
deep. And the source is a spring. It's coming up from the bottom. And now this is a different feeling. There is motion there, and there is upwelling. So one of the emotions is joy is still there, PT is still there. But this hand activity, this squeezing, moving, massaging, has ceased. And something is now in, but still in motion. But it is is almost without agency. So also notice that there's no master or the apprentice there. There's no craftsperson or an apprentice there. There's nobody there. It's a natural scene where just water is just coming up. There's still activity. There's kind of a, a verb there. It's being fed from inside. But nobody is doing it. So that's something to, with these similes, is to really explore all aspects. This is English poetry 303, whatever it is, you know, that stuff. Yeah, you got to really turn it over. And actually, if you've studied poetry, that, that is very helpful as a background to this, to these similes. These similes are like poetry. You really have to untangle them and understand what they mean. So the second jhana is just that vitaka and vichara has fallen away, but piti, sukha, and ekagata are still there. Ekagata meaning that complete absorption. In the third jhana is this beautiful image of a, a lotus, which has a lotus flower rising from the bottom of water. The water image is still kept. So there's a cool, clear, pure, liquid kind of imagery. And But the, the, the flower has not broken the surface of the water yet. It's still anchored. It's suspended in water. Now, notice that there's no activity there. There's no suggestion of this upwelling spring. There's a stillness to this. But there's the beauty of the flower at the same time. And the flower is saturated, completely saturated with water, and yet is suspended in water. And in this third jhana is that the PT has subsided. So PT is the movement, the energy movement has subsided, but the pleasure in the body is still there. And the body of the flower is mentioned as saturated. The, the flower is saturated with this water. But there's kind of a gravityless. there's zero gravity there. And uh, of course, anybody who's been in water knows that when you fully immerse your body that it's just completely weightless. And so, of course, this flower is representing you and your body. So your body is very, very light. There's not much sense of weight to your body. But the emotional aspect is, is moving towards equanimity, is reducing in terms of the 
the joy element, you're actually moving farther and farther away from the world. So one of the reasons why one would go beyond the first jhana is that it's still too close to the experience of the world through sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas. So you can fall out of it. It's close to the type of normal activity of the mind. It's a little on the close side to that. So the person wants to move farther in, so that's why they're shutting down the thinking process. And then the second jhana still has this experience of joy to it, and one might want to move even farther away from the world. And that's where this element of joy starts to diminish. Uh, the emotional quality diminishes, but there's still pleasure of the body. This pleasure of the body is subtle, but beautiful. And an element of exquisite kind of stillness of mind arises. Uh, kind of like, uh, you know, in the right conditions, when you're feeling alive and joyful and you haven't eaten or drank anything for a while, you're thirsty, then to have a glass of just cool water is quite exquisite. Sometimes it's amazing. You think, you know, I, I forgot how amazingly wonderful water is because <laughs> you're always drinking fizzies and colored things and flavored things and the more spices and all this stuff, but there's something almost unmatchable about water, but only if you are a gourmand. <laughs> you have to be a refined person to appreciate the taste of water. And it's in certain moments of your life you will it will come to you how unmatchable almost that this is. So this subtlety of the bodily feeling of the third jhana is unmatchable, exquisite, but requires an exquisite stillness to appreciate. It's the similes are brilliant. The next one, the fourth jhana, is the water is gone. And the person is also gone. The, the fizzy quality of joy has already receded by the third jhana. But there's still this saturated body, which is hanging sort of without gravity in liquid, though. Now the Buddha removes that and changes the element and he talks about a man has been covered in a white, clean white sheet from head to toe with no part of the body uncovered. Now the sheet is, is white, so it's without any quality of color to it. The flower image has some 
sort of beauty and quality of color. So this is where we're moving towards equanimity. The emotion is pure equanimity. And the pleasure of the body has also subsided and disappeared. The body is feather light. And the only image is this colorless white sheet. And the sheet, obviously, if you put a sheet over you, it's cool, but it's very, very light. It's not like the water element. At that point also, uh, the breath has almost ceased. The actual inhalation and exhalation is almost unnoticeable. The respiration has been slowing down. And now is almost undetectable. And I would love to hear some modern neuroscience about why that is, because even when you're asleep, you have a steady respiration per minute. So it's not just the shutting down of the activity of the mind, the body, and sleep still breathes in a number of respirations per minute and so forth. But in the jhana, this is the characteristic, and it's not separable from the experience. The breath always slows down. And the breaths per minute, the volume of air is just diminished. And it must be because the area of your mind, your brain, that is normally engaged with the six senses, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas, this is intimately related to respiration. How much you need, and of course, also the hindrances are very... Agitation, you know, shallow, rapid breathing, agitation, also anger is rapid breathing, but sort of bellow breathing, you know, uh, large intakes, etc. Desire can change the respirations and the quality of the respirations as well. And also, uh, like sloth, the heavy sloth, depression and so forth, you hear it's more of a, a plaintive sigh. <laughs> um, and doubt, probably rapid and jagged and uneven types of breathing. You can see how close the respiration is to the emotional structures. But the more focused and calmer one is, and the less ideation, less discursive activity, and depending on the quality of the discursive activity, the respiration falls. And so that's one of the secondary side effects. They mentioned this in the, uh, in the commentaries particularly. The Buddha is not particularly focused on that. The commentaries notice that. And at the time, they don't have, they can't give you a number of respirations per minute because they don't have minutes. They haven't invented the smartwatch yet. So they just say it slows down. And they even indicate that it stops in the fourth jhana, but I, I think they're just giving a... I don't think they actually can measure that. 
I think that's just a subjective feeling that it stops. But it's definitely a supernormal condition because that isn't the case for respiration. And that shows you that you're using different circuits that are just not used by ordinary people. That you're getting effects in the body. By the way, the heart rate still continues. But the respiration is the characteristic falling. So these similes are extremely important to keep an eye on, to know, to give you a sense, because there's no other way to communicate this. I, I don't know how else one would talk about it. These are not normal. It's not something that... This kind of description and these kind of states are not available in certain languages because the entire culture that generates that language has never, there is no experience in that culture of such a thing as jhana. They'll have experiences of anger, of excitement, of love, maybe of relief, of peace, of pleasure, but they, the entire culture may have no particular words or vocabulary around this um, this. Uh, unusual supernormal condition. When you look at Christian contemplative language, you can see that some of them are probably getting into the jhanas. And they have to come up with their own similes in order to communicate what's going on. It tends to be much more confused and uh, because they're they're bringing in God image, you know, relationship to God and so forth into it. It doesn't require. There's no need for that. They're adding something which is not necessary to add to the experience. But you see, uh, Teresa of Avila, she's a mystic, contemplative, who uses the same simile as the Buddha. She talks about she's like a turtle. How she does this, she how she goes into this state of, you know, beautiful withdrawal from the world. And she's like a turtle. She withdraws her, the five limbs all into the interior. So the five limbs are the five senses, the, the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And when she pulls into this shell, then she's safe from the world. And this, this is the exact simile that Buddha uses. He says, uh, you know, he says a tortoise withdraws its five limbs into its shell and then a coyote or the jackal comes along and tries to eat the tortoise, but the shell, eventually he, can't, he gives up. He can't, can't get at the tortoise. And then he explains the simile. This is the jhana and the jackal is Mara. Mara can't get you in the jhana. What is Mara? Mara is a number of things, but it is your, is your delusion. Mara is the lord of this sensory world and one who entangles you in the illusions of the sensory world. The trickster, 
it also, of course, functions in your imagination as well. Your imagination is a trickster. But when you withdraw into the jhana, you're safe. You disappear off Mara's radar screen. And so spiritual traditions, religious people know this harassment that the mind produces and is sometimes experienced as an external agency. And I, I wouldn't discount the possibility of an external Mara at all. Like the, It seems very clear in the Buddhist scriptures as well that there's a kind of a agency. It's just pervasive through all human experience, which is quite obviously sometimes in your mind. It's you, basically. Sometimes it's your body. There's something. Your body can sometimes feel like it's not that something is invading your body or it's got a mind of its own as well. And sometimes your mind feels like it has a mind of its own. And sometimes the darndest things happen to you. And it's hard to believe that it's just coincidence. <laughs> External factors seem to arrive in the most, sometimes the most frustrating or perplexing ways. You have decided to, you know, go straight in life. You have put aside your bad habits and you're straightening out everything and then who should show up but <laughs> somebody with a... <laughs> you decide to give up drinking and then your friend drops in with this wonderful aged bottle of... <laughs> and wants you to participate. Now how do the, You haven't seen your friend for 20 years. Now what, what's going on here? <laughs> Why now? Etc. 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 So the samadhi is a powerful place of refuge. Mara, the activities, the confusion, the problems have subsided there and the possibility of vision is enhanced. So it, part of it is the, the clarity of the mind. Now, we're taking this experience and directing it particularly towards trying to see anicca, dukkha, anatta, the three characteristics, trying to see the four noble truths. It could be used for other things, and it, it probably is. This is what breakthroughs in, understand, in, in almost any area of life. Samadhi can be used to see in a new light, with new clarity, with new eyes, because the mind is in a, in a different and enhanced state of lucidity and clarity. So ideas and breakthroughs in all kinds of areas of life could be made by samadhi. But the Buddha is particularly saying that it's only sama samadhi, right samadhi, when you then apply it to the Dhamma. So it's always at the service of Dhamma. You go in there knowing why you're doing this, but don't disturb the experience while you're in it and don't 
rush the experience either. This is the primary thing is that it has a, a lot of benefits, but you don't want to compromise it by trying to reflect in the midst of it. You need to exercise it so that you're able to enter it and enjoy the experience because it is intrinsically enjoyable. It is maybe the finest human experience you can have. It's intrinsically pleasant and it's not something to be, that pleasure is not something to be dismissed or afraid of. So this is the quote on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment that he realizes himself, this is happiness which leads to happiness. This is a pleasure not to be feared. So whether you like it or not, you're going to enjoy yourself. <laughs> uh, actually, if you don't like it, you won't enjoy yourself because you won't be able to get into it. <laughs> so this is something, there's whole sort of schools of Buddhism that is kind of afraid of things like this, but uh, it's just so black and white. It's so intrinsically explained so many times by the Buddha that it is something that has to be restored and encouraged, this experience. It's intrinsically beneficial, and in both ways, both as a blessing to your life, even in ordinary things like having to sort out a, an issue in your, in your regular life, even technical things, scientific things, arrangements about your life, this kind of thing this samadhi is extremely helpful for boosting your, the quality of your thinking. In fact, it, almost, it is pretty well alters how you feel about things, almost against your, your will. You will feel differently about things. So it's a very powerful thing, a state of mind, and it's just simply not known in Western culture. It just isn't. It was maybe to some degree known to the Greek philosophers, some of them, but had been lost somewhere along the line and just not available. And we don't use our mind that way. We don't know what it means. We have the word meditate, but it, it means to think, you know, basically. So they knew about it. It's a unique culture, and many of the cultures on the planet didn't know about it, or maybe a few unique individuals did, but couldn't manage to explain it to anybody else. So this is why you have to access the main suttas on this, is that's where you're going to get the best information, and you have to immerse yourself in that and take time and practice that, and of course, it's really, it's a bit, it's not so easy to perhaps to practice at home. There's some distractions and so forth. Everybody has different situations. But when you come to a situation, you know, a couple weeks or more to a, a supported environment, there's much higher likelihood that you will 
come close to this, especially if you're hearing about it on a regular basis. Then, you know, if you touch on it, then you can go home and to the extent that you have the opportunity, you can cultivate this. And there may be whole periods of your life where it's just, there's just too many events going on and difficult to get to it. But you might be, you might be fortunate enough and motivated enough to arrange your situation so that you can enter into this. And it's not like you have to be in this all the time, but if you can even touch on this for in a half an hour in a day, you know, if you can get your mind to that quality of stillness and clarity, even first jhana or second jhana. By the way, the third and the fourth jhana are extraordinary accomplishments, extraordinary. One should not think this is easily available. That's an extraordinary depth of suspension of, uh, of the ordinary processes of the mind. So don't think, darn, I went there for two weeks and I didn't get the fourth jhana. What, what's going on? I, sh I want my money back, you know. <laughs> you, if, you come, if you touch the first jhana at all, you're already, you're blessed my friend, blessed for the rest of your life and many after that as well. <laughs> you have to understand these are exalted states and not to be taken lightly. It can be very badly misunderstood. It's a beautiful condition. It's productive of great mental and emotional well-being. And, you know, this is, these are hard to say, except that, I, and I have to quote the Buddha, that these kind of states will come up at the time of death. You know, that this, they're so, they have such power that the mind goes into special states near the time of death, which everybody knows about these kind of uh, near-death experience accounts and so forth. But that if you can touch on this sometime in your life, any time in your life, that you are generated a high probability that the contents of your consciousness near the time of death will be altered in a positive way. Oh, we have to trust the Buddha on that. I can't uh, confirm that. But, you know, it's remarkable. The power of his understanding of the mind and how it works and everything is remarkable. So I have to just pass that along as an interesting and very important, it's not just a side note or anything like that, this is important. This, you're shaping the quality of your dying moments by doing this. And from a Buddhist point of view, the quality of your dying moments, your consciousness at death, is extraordinarily important. So quite aside from like an interesting exercise, this is existentially critical. Very important. Well, I, I have talked somewhat more than I thought. I must say, when I sat down this evening, I did not have a thing in my head to say, but it seems I, I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll leave it there. <laughs>